Scripture reading is Psalm 31. Give your attention to the reading. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have forgotten, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the God, Lord, for who has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me, When I was a besieged city, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. It was, uh, it's been attributed to a fellow named William Shakespeare. These words, expectation is the root of all heartache. The only problem with that is William Shakespeare never wrote that or said it. 
Heartache was a word that wasn't used in that generation. Here's what he said, and it comes from his work, All's Well That Ends Well. You ready? Oft expectation fails, and most oft there where most it promises. Now, I've got to scratch my head a little bit uh, as I hear that, and maybe you do too as well, because basically it means expectation is the root of all heartache. That's what it means. But we have to stretch a little bit to hear those profound words and let them sink in. We have to stretch a bit. We don't always have to stretch, though, when it comes to reading something like what we've just heard from Psalm 31. It's a long reading, longer than a normal reading for a sermon. But we don't have to stretch to understand something of what David, in this case, is saying because he's talking about things that we're familiar with or that we know, like grief and sighing and, and anguish. We, we know that. We know that maybe all too well. It really has to do, but what I want us to talk about and frame this today is our expectations. Because uh, what I've learned about my own self, and maybe this is true of you as well, is that when we, when we come into the Christian faith, and you may be here today exploring the Christian faith, but as we come into it, we have some kind of expectation that if I give my life to God, that troubles will dissipate. Troubles will fade. Or troubles will even go away. And... and and there's also an expectation that, that if I really give my life to God like, like he calls me to, that, that there's something, as I know enough about the Christian faith, to understand that there should be some kind of joy that comes with that, some kind of enduring faith and hope that is strong enough to see me through dark times, at least enough to, to, to make me quietly happy when things don't go well. And, and if nurtured, if strengthened and nurtured, it ought to be strong enough to see me through the darkest of times. We, we think that, and we suppose that, and yet there's the reality. There, there, the expectation is that those things that ought to be true about my life, and probably yours, aren't always true. The reality is there are times when I am worn out with trouble. We see that here. We see it all throughout Scripture, which is one of the reasons I love how real the Bible is. It's realistic. And when we hear David singing this song and praying this prayer, we can sing right along because we know the chorus. <laughs> we know the vocabulary. We don't have to stretch to understand what he means when he talks about circumstances that are dire and hard, because we know that. We've, we've, got some, we've got a long list, maybe, of circumstances that are hard. That's the reality. The reality is, is like a splash of cold water. But the fact is, the real story of the Bible is that it, that it never says that if you love God, God in his word never says that if you love me, that your troubles will, be, will go away. He doesn't promise you or me, he doesn't promise us a rose garden. He promises something better. 
And we'll get to that in a moment. He doesn't promise that all these things will go away. But the other thing is the Bible never trivializes suffering. And I like that and I appreciate that too. It never trivializes and says, oh, these things aren't really bad. It says that they are. When Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept because he was angry. Because there are things in this world that are not pleasant, that are not good. And we're never asked to call something bad good. But what we are asked is to reassess and understand what's going on. And what we find the Christian church believes, and this passage teaches us, that there is a hope. There is a hope that is endures. There's a kind of hope that it can bear the weight of all the trouble you will ever face in this world. And your hope will be strong to the degree that you grasp what David sees and what David does in this psalm. He shows us the way to hope. He shows us the way, how we find our way to that place in the midst of the life that we're living in this world with all its brokenness, with all its trouble, with all its strain and stress. And he takes us there. The, the psalm really falls into two parts. And that's, those are our two points of this talk today. <clears throat> we see in the first 18 verses an anguished prayer. We learn something about David's God and our God from his prayer and how he prays, an anguished prayer. The second part, beginning in verse 19, is, is what I'm going to call today a settled thanksgiving. Anguished prayer and settled thanksgiving for the time that we have here. His, uh, it's a cry of the soul, and he's, there are circumstances that, that are facing David that we don't know a lot about. We do know some things. We can't tell exactly. When you read uh, the first eight verses, it sounds like he's looking for divine protection, for God to protect him. When you keep reading, it sounds like he is sick or maybe wounded. And if you keep reading, it sounds like he's been wrongly accused. And we know from David's story that all three of those were true at different times, and sometimes they were true all at once, perhaps. We really don't know what the specific circumstances are. But what we do know, and we can tell from this, is from verse 2, we know that there's an immediateness, there's an immediate urgency to it. He says, rescue me quickly, rescue me now. So there's some immediacy to it. Some of you have struggles and trials and difficulties that are immediate. And for some of you, <clears throat> they're on a day to come. But David's talking about something that is immediate. And to the degree that we grasp this, you'll be ready for that desperate moment when it comes. There's an immediate urgency. There's also a specific cause. He talks in verses 4, 8, and 13, and 15 about his enemies. Most of David's enemies, it seemed, had two arms and two legs. And there were a lot of those, it seemed, at various times. There were places where he was cornered. It was places where he was threatened. It was a place where somebody was coming after him, real enemies. Most of us don't have those sorts of enemies today. You may. There may be two-legged versions of this that are out to get you, that are out to destroy your reputation. But for all of us, all the time, there's a kind of enemy, the Bible tells us, that we all have all the time. The, 
the categories in the summary fashion are the enemies that we all face in various ways throughout our lives come in the form of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Just a moment on those before we move on. The world, when you hear that word, when you read it in Scripture, is talking about a mindset. It's a mindset of this world, this time, this way of thinking and living. It, it's kind of, uh, it's an orientation toward the now. And we all know that one. The world, now I'm not talking about media, although that's a lot of way it comes at us. Uh, it comes to the assumptions of the day, but the prevailing notion of the day is now is what matters. Now is what counts. And we oriented our lives around the world when we, when we live our lives based on now. Does that sound familiar to the culture in which we live or to your own way of thinking about things? It's now. That's what, that's what counts. Uh, that's what the Bible means when it's talking about the world as an enemy because it's at odds with, it's at cross currents with the fact that there's a bigger story. There's a truer story. There's a reality that, that, is, that is bigger than this moment that gives, gives shape to the way I live in the moment if I'm thinking better than I tend to think. If I can see it from a bigger perspective, it gives, a, gives me a reference on the moment in which we live. That's, a, that's an enemy, Scripture calls it. That's our enemy. Also, the flesh. And basically what that's talking about is the part of me, the part of you that wants to be God, that wants to take control, that wants to say, my life is in my hands and no one else's. Does that sound familiar? That's an enemy, the Bible says. An orientation to this part of me that wants to be in control of all things and all circumstances. So uh, the world, the flesh, and then the devil. Uh, without spending a lot of time on that one, the, the fact is it's referring to an intellect, an intelligent, supernatural opposition personality that is opposed to all things good, true, and lovely. And while not everybody in this world will buy into that, those people that don't buy into that notion in the history of the world are in a minority. Most people of all time have understood and recognized that there is a spiritual aspect and a spiritual war that occurs. And the storyline of the Bible takes that into account and addresses it. But the Bible calls those our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What I want you to notice, though, is that in the midst of those circumstances, in the face of those enemies, whether they're two-legged or, or mindsets or my inclination to live my own life or, or a supernatural being that's opposing everything good and true and lovely, there's two responses that David makes I want to call our attention to today. The first one is a turning to. It's a turning to. You see it in the words refuge and rock and fortress. You see he recognizes in the midst of those circumstances, I need to go somewhere. I need to turn toward a place that is a shelter or that is safe. And as we talked before a couple of weeks ago about I need a place to put my feet that's solid. I need protection. I need a, a harbor from the storm in the midst of these circumstances. And it's a turning. There's actually a turning that goes on. It's like somebody taking the rudder of the ship or the, or the wheel of the car and turning 
to a safe place. And David turns or says he's turning and he, and he cries out again and again about this turning, knowing that, recognizing that, unless he does, he is in peril. There's a word for all of us there. It's the notion that left to ourselves in this world, until we turn, until we right the ship, until we find a safe harbor, we are subject to the tossing and turning of everything that goes on in this world, everything that goes on in us, and everything that would undo us. We need a refuge. We need a shelter. We need a rock. There's a turning too. There's also a trusting in. It's one thing to turn, but it's another thing to trust and to, and to, to make the determination that as I go there, I'm committing myself to this and I'm counting on what I find there. There's a trusting in. We see it in verses 6 through 8 where he says, I, but I trust in you. And what's striking is this is in the midst of those bad, bad deals. The circumstances are, are flaring. Nothing has gone away. But in the midst of those circumstances, David says, but I trust in you. He says, I trust in you a couple of times. Verse 6 and verse 14. He's, he's, re, he's talking about Really the kind of trust that I always hoped would be mine. Not a partial trust or a sometimes trust, but he's talking about in the midst of the storm, an absolute trust. It's all the chips are in. I'm, I'm betting the farm. <laughs> I'm betting the soul, my soul. No, no reservation. I'm trusting in you because I can't trust in me. There's a turning to, there's a trusting in, and, and he builds that trust. And how do we get that kind of trust? How do we get that absolute trust? He does two things. He, he recounts the experiences of how God has faithfully been there in the past. In verses 3 through 8, you see that. He, he, he describes how God has been there before. And in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the difficulties, he starts telling the story. And that builds a trust in him. Yes, you were faithful. You were faithful here. You were faithful then. You did this. You, you, you protected me from that. He's telling the story. He's recounting the experiences. And that, and that builds his trust. He also recalls the promises. In verse 16, he he remembers a promise that God made that he would show his face to his people. You, you've heard this. We, we use it. In fact, we can use it at the end of the service. It's that, it's that blessing from Aaron, the priest. Lord, turn your face toward your people because you have said you would. Give us grace and mercy because you've said you would. Give us grace and peace because you are God of grace and peace. He's, re he's recounting the, the instances, but he's also remembering the promises. He talks about God's steadfast love, and he says, that's it. In the midst of this difficult life that I'm living, it's God's steady, enduring, ongoing love. It's not fickle like mine or yours. It's steady. It doesn't fade. It doesn't go away. It's not measured. It's steadfast. And, 
If you've been around here, you've, you've heard us talk about the fact that that's actually a very unique way of describing what we've also called, rightly from Scripture, God's covenant love. That He's pledged Himself to you. In fact, He said, it's not your lovability, it's not your loving me back that conditions this. It's, an, it's, gar- it's given to you. And when he, when he made this covenant with his people, he said, if, you, if, if I don't live up to my promise, may I be split asunder. But he also said, if you don't live up to your promise, I will be split asunder. That's what you see in, in Genesis as we see this covenant that God made with Abraham. And the covenant that David reminds himself of and steps into, that God is with us. There's not anything that stands in the way of this. And that's why I can trust him. Romans 8, some of you are familiar with that. You should look at it later. It's all about living, it's living in a suffering world, a world itself that suffers. And what does Paul say? Paul, who knew Psalm 31, who knew the covenant with Abraham, he says, Jesus is the one who in your suffering is with you, that there's nothing that stands between you and that suffering. Christ, it doesn't get in the way of Christ. Christ is there. It's not persecution, danger, sword, trouble. Nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ. And that's why we can trust him. In the midst of the difficultness of our world and our lives, we can. In fact, the very circumstances that passage teaches us, the very circumstances that might undo us, are the very circumstances he uses to capture our hearts and actually reshape us in the image of Christ. So we can look at those circumstances differently, turning to our rock and our refuge, our fortress, trusting in his promises Takeaway from that is the Bible does not promise a better life circumstances. It promises a better life. Most people, when things go wrong, think, I'm going to fix it or I'm going to sue you. (laughs) That's the modern take on it. Things are supposed to go right. But you see, Christians don't go that route because we understand that if anything good happens to me, it's not because God promised it. It's because God does it. The good things that we can point to, that we can rattle off, are His blessings. It's grace. We live in a broken world that is being remade, and we're being remade. And God gives Himself to us again and again. But we understand that life in this world is hard and will be. Because He, because he is good. That's the takeaway from this part is our hope is rooted in the conviction that God's ways are trustworthy because God is good. John Newton got it well when he said, everything that is is necessary that he sends, nothing can be necessary that he withholds. And when I get that, when that begins to seep in, I'm able to trust him even when the circumstances are yet to change. In fact, even if those circumstances worsen. Because that's, that's a reality too. That's a possibility too, that the circumstances of our lives might be worse tomorrow than they are at their worst. 
And what do we do then? Can we do, can we see what David sees? Can we do what David does? There's a big shift between verse 18 and 19. There's a movement from anguished prayer to what I've called a settled thanksgiving. And what's occurred? What's changed? It's not circumstances. But something has changed. And what I would propose to you is that what has changed is that the anchor has hit bottom. Here's what I mean by that. In a storm, I'm not a sailor, I wish I were, but in a storm, I, that's probably why I'm not a sailor, the, the, the possibility of storms on the seas, the raging storms. But I would know to lower the mast, to, to, to take away the power of the wind, and I'd know to call out for help. But that's about all I would know. But I do know that there's a harbor somewhere, and that if we can get this boat to that harbor and drop anchor... When that anchor hits bottom, things change. The storm hasn't gone away. Still getting wet from the splashes of the waves up against the side of the, of the boat. The wind is still howling, but there's something different. The anchor has landed, and in its place, I can rest. I'm not out of this yet, but I can rest in the fact that this boat isn't going anywhere else most likely. <laughs> it's going to get tossed and turned. There will be hardships, and we're not through bailing water, but I can rest. And when the anchor drops, things change. And what I want to ask you today is, in the midst of sighing and troubles and circumstances that are dark and sometimes sharp and painful, has the anchor dropped? Has the anchor hit bottom for you? Resting in the soil underneath the sea of God's goodness. Here's how it does for David. The anchor hits bottom, not because the circumstances have changed, but his anticip anticipation of answered prayer. He is, he's anguished his soul. He's laid it out. He's, he's cried out to God for 18 verses, reminding himself as well as God, I'm trusting in you. By the time we get to verse 18, something has occurred, and it's his anticipation of answered prayers that we actually find in the psalm. And if you'll bear with me for a moment, this will take some looking. You'll need to take your eyes, look at the text, look at the, the bulletin in front of you or your open Bible, and let me say, see if I can show you how his anticipated prayers, answered prayers, are embedded in the text. He gives thanks in verse, most of this is verses 19 through 23. So turn your gaze there for a minute and then we'll, we'll point back to some earlier moments. In verse, in verse 19, he says, God's goodness, he thanks God for, God for his goodness to those who sought refuge. Just like in verse 2, he sought refuge in God. David had sought refuge and now he's thanking God for that refuge. In verse 20, he thanks God that God protects his own from conspiracies and the strife of tongues. Just as in verse 17, David had experienced conspiracies and verbal attacks. Verse 21, he thanks God that God reveals his loving kindness. Just as in verse 17, he prayed that he would. 
In verse 22, he thinks that God heard the prayer of the psalmist just as he prayed in verse 3 that he would. In verse 23, he thanks God that he loved his saints and hated his enemies, just as in verse 7, David expressed a hatred for idolaters and trusted in God. You see it? The circumstances haven't changed. In fact, all the answers haven't shown up, but he's talking past tense as if they had. As in the reality that these prayers that I've prayed, I'm anticipating the fullness of your answer. So, I can give thanks. But ultimately, I can give thanks, not just because I'm quite sure he's going to answer the prayer, but I can also go as far to say is, because you are good, however you answer this prayer is good. You may, Father, give me exactly what I've laid out. You may deal with the circumstances of my life. You may remedy this in just the way that I've imagined. But even if you don't, it is your goodness and your character and your presence that changes the way I live through this. That I can say, even through tears, you are good. Another way of saying this is that our hope is anchored in what is stored up. He uses that language in verses 19 and 20. Look at that, if you will. This is how you can give thanks before the prayer is answered. This is the key. It's being able to say that whatever you do with this request is good. And in verse 19, what is it that's stored up for those who fear you? God's goodness. His goodness is stored up. There's a waiting. It it supposes, it anticipates there's a waiting that goes on because it's stored up. And so in the trial, in the difficulty, I will have to wait. But what's, what's stored up is goodness, the goodness of God for his own. But that's not the only thing stored up. Look at verse 20. Those who take refuge in you are hidden or stored up in your shelter. It's not just that the goodness of God is stored up for you, but you are stored up for Him. You are stored up in the midst of the difficulty and the trial. That's why Peter in 1 Peter 1 wrote this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith. There's an inheritance kept for you, and you are being kept for that inheritance. David was expressing that. The goodness of God is stored up for you. And you are being hidden or stored up or kept for him. 
And that's the beauty of this story of redemption, that God breaks into a world that is marked by suffering and trial and difficulty and storms. And all the bad things that happen to people happen to those who love God. Same things. The difference is a good God is the one who is with you in the midst of the storm, who is at work in you, preserving you and sustaining you and has pledged himself to you and he is with you and he does turn his face to you and he does give you grace and he does give you peace in the midst of the storm. So how do you know if you're ready? How do you know if you're ready for the trials that some of you are experiencing and some of you will, the rest of you will? Here's how. Can you say with David these four things? Can you say with David in verse 14, you are my God? Not some generic God. You are my God and you are my God. Can you say that with David? Can you say with David in verse 15, my times are in your hand. It's not just the, the valleys of the earth, the mountaintops and the sea and the dry land, but it is my life, my times, my hardships, my hopes, my dreams, my plans, my expectations are in your hands. Can you say with David in verse 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm, I'm pledging myself to you. I'm backing off. And I'm giving you your place in my life. And can you say with David, ultimately, verse, four, uh, verse 5, you have redeemed me. He is a God who redeems He's a God who saves and preserves those who look to him, those who come to him, who've thrown their hands up and says, I quit. That's the God who is with you in the storm. And when this gets hold of you, when this runs through the core of your being, when it goes from head to heart and into your hands and feet in life, this is what you'll find. A confident trust. A spiritual backbone that's not just something that you understand, it's something that you stand under. That truth, that reality. You also find an enduring hope, a hope that endures through the darkness and through the hardships and through the waves, the crashing waves. A confident trust, an enduring hope that lasts. You also find a spontaneous praise. That's how David ends this one, where it spills over and he says, hey, you saints, hey, the rest of you, look to God, trust in him, Strengthen your heart. Give him the glory. It spills over. You know, ultimately, in conclusion, what David does in the psalm, what we need to get, what we need to see and grasp and do, is to recognize that God does not promise an end to our trouble, but the strength to meet it. But it's not just strength like fresh batteries. For a lot of us, we would settle for that. <laughs> fresh batteries to, to meet the demand, to meet the challenge. But it's not fresh batteries he gives. He gives us something better. He gives us himself. The, the verse 24 reads, strengthen your heart, but it can just as easily be translated, he will strengthen your heart. And frankly, I think that's probably a better way to understand it. It's at least as valid and maybe more helpful 
Because you see, we can say that because in the garden, it wasn't Jesus who strengthened his own heart at that darkest moment. The man of sorrows acquainted with grief, he knew. He knew all of your griefs and all of your sorrows better than we do. He's known it. He came to step into that reality, that brokenness of the world. And he didn't gird up his strength. He prayed and said, God, if there's a way, let me know. And you know what God's response was? An angel appeared from heaven, strengthening him. God is the one who strengthens your heart. When you look to him, when you fix your gaze on him, strengthen him. And how does he do that? He opens your eyes to see that Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah, is the one who suffered, the one who not only was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief like we sing, but the scripture tells us in Isaiah 53 that he has borne our griefs, that it was our sorrows that he carried. And all of these things, the waves that crash in, the sighing and the grief and the affliction, the suffering that we know in this world, the circumstances that would undo us are things that he bears, that he carries, that he is in there and he has borne the full weight of all of those things. He has borne the weight of all of those things, which is why there is a hope in this world. This is where we started. There is a hope in this world that is strong enough to to bear the weight of all of your sufferings and all your trials. And that hope is Jesus. It's not your spiritual fortitude. And it's not fresh batteries. It's the one who took David's cry as his own, who took Psalm 31 as his own and said, My times are in your hands, Lord, Father, and I will do what you require to rescue a fallen race. I will bear the weight of their iniquities. I will bear the suffering that they endure in this world, the hardships, the trials that are painful. I will, I will endure that for them to, sh- to, to, to make a way out of that into something that is grand and glorious and beautiful. God did not promise you a rose garden but he promises you a rose. That in the midst of the storm and in the midst of the trial, there is a whiff of something beautiful, of something more permanent, more lasting, more joyous than anything that we could squeeze out of life in this world anyway. There's no rose garden, but there's a rose, and that rose is yours. It's Christ who says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because I have endured the suffering that you're experiencing, and I am with you. You know what? When things are bad, I would love for things to be different, but what I need more than anything is not always better circumstances. I need someone who, in the midst of that, loves me and is with me. And if you've ever been at a, in circumstances that are dire and draining and just suck the life and energy out, that's what you need, isn't it? Someone who loves you in spite of who you are 
in the midst of those circumstances. Jesus said, my times are in your hand and it is good. And he said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And because he did, we live. And we live with hope. A hope that endures. A hope that is steadied by his goodness and his presence. Let's pray. Father, would you work that into us? Work that into our hearts and lives? The beauty and the reality of this gospel that we talk about week after week here. Lord, we know what it is to sigh and to suffer and to long for something that's better than it is. And all of our hopes are found in fulfillment in you. So Lord, let us not look any other place. Let us not try to squeeze life out of anything else in this world. But let us look to you. And the man of sorrows who bore our sorrows who bore our griefs, and in doing so, won our redemption so that we can say that our times are in your hands and you have redeemed us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.